If you asked Jesus to heal your child or to help him, and he said no, how would you respond? In today's passage, John is completing a longer story that includes the sign of water to wine at Canaan and Galilee, the lack of spiritual understanding we saw with Nicodemus in chapter 3, the unexpected belief of the Samaritans that we saw last week, and now the response of the people of Galilee to Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus did lots of signs and miracles for anybody who asked him, but those signs and miracles had a specific purpose to authenticate his ministry and a point to the fact that he was, in fact, the Son of God come to earth. And so he did not, in fact, heal everyone who was sick in the entire country of Israel. Uh, there are probably, based on John's words later in the book, more signs that Jesus performed than are recorded for us in the Gospels. But Jesus didn't heal everybody who was sick at that particular time. Uh, he was only in ministry for three, three and a half years. And even of those people, he had specific places geographically that he went to where he was healing and casting out demons and all of those things. Furthermore, his acts of healing didn't automatically lead to people believing. And today's story is, I think, a great example of that. There's this curious crowd that's, that's watching to see what's going to happen because they hear that Jesus has come out of Samaria and they're wanting to see what he's going to do next. And then this father runs up and he's urgently pleading for the life of his child. How is Jesus going to respond? In these verses, I think we see this. Jesus tests the faith of those who want to see his power. First of all, I think we see that curiosity is not the same as faith. Jesus has just spent uh, two days with the Samaritans who had come to believe in him. We see this in verses 40 through 42. When the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So there's this sharp contrast between the Samaritans who hear this woman who's been living in various kinds of sin, who encounters Jesus, and she says, Come meet this one who's told me all the things I ever did. No sign. No miracle, nothing unusual other than the fact of his divine knowledge. They come, they er eagerly plead with him to come stay with them and teach them more and be with them. Jesus comes back to Galilee where he had grown up, that particular district. And the people are saying, huh, he's back. Let's see what he's up to next. There's this disconnect between those that you would expect not to believe because they didn't have the right advantages in terms of background, in terms of what they've been taught religiously. They believe, but Jesus' own people don't seem to. They were interested in his signs, but not so much in his message. We see this more clearly by the time we get to John chapter 6. So a quick preview here. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks to them and says various things. And John 6 verse 60 says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Therefore, uh, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? And then down in verse 66, As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Where was this taking place? Verse 59, He said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
So same region, same general group of people. Curiosity about Jesus and the miracles that he does, but not really a committed belief in following after him as true disciples. We have a little bit of attention as we come to verse 44. Jesus says in verse 44, A prophet is without honor in his own country, but the Galileans seem to receive him in verse 45. Verse 45 specifically says, The Galileans received him. So how do we resolve this? Well, certainly there are a variety of possibilities, one of which is to say, well, this is just a compilation of various stories, and the guy that was stitching it together overlooked this verse and messed up. If you believe that God's word is from God, if you believe that it has been accurately preserved, as we would, then that's not one of the possibilities that's on the table. It's not an editorial mistake. Somebody overlooked it. So then that moves us to the question of why is this particular statement in this story at this place? The reason that it's here is to see it, I think, as a, as a general proverb kind of a statement. Chapter 1 said in verse 11, He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. So, essentially, here's what the statement is saying. The vast majority of Jesus' own people reject him. Some of them do believe. We saw that in chapter 1. Some of those who are not fully Jews believe, as we saw in John chapter 4. But the general pattern is that of all the people you would expect to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, most of them don't. There's no need to see a contradiction with the idea that the Galileans received him, but a contrast with the faith of the Samaritans and the curious at a distance observation of the Israelites as a whole. And so because curiosity is not the same as faith, Jesus uses this man's request as a test of both his faith and all those who are observing I think we see from the second part of this story that Jesus has the right to test the faith of those who appear to follow him. So we'll start in verse 46. He comes to Cana of Galilee. So there's this returning. There's a, this cyclical approach in the book of John and in John's epistles where he returns to themes that he's talked about previously. There's a lot of parallels between the story of the water to wine and the story of the healing of the royal official's son. In John 2, there's a crisis. There's a request. Jesus does a miracle. In here in John 4, there's a crisis. There's a request. Jesus does a miracle. There's also differences between the two stories. There, Jesus' mother says to the servants, do what he asks, and they do it. Here, there is perhaps a a hesitation or a question of whether the same willingness is going to follow or flow through. Who is this man who comes to Jesus? Well, he's a royal official. Uh, The specific word is basically the idea of a a member of the king's bureaucracy. And so who would have been the king in this region? Well, Herod, most likely, would have been king in this area. And so he's a member of one of the Herod's royal household doing various tasks of whatever kind. We don't know all the specifics. But he's a man of some, import, uh, some importance. But his attachment to Herod, who has very, a very loose connection 
with, uh, with religion, if you will, means that this man is probably not particularly devout. He's most likely partially despised by the people. The people, as a rule, didn't love Herod. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't particularly love Herod, except to the extent that he gave them political power and access to Rome. And so here's a man who, like the woman in the previous chapter, probably you wouldn't have expected to evidence a great amount of faith. We would expect it of Nicodemus in chapter 3. He's one of the religious elite. He's one of the people who knows the law front and back. But this man, a royal official, potentially a corrupt royal official, if we know anything of the way the governments tend to work, he comes to Jesus, what's Jesus going to do? Some people have said that this is a, a recasting of the story of the centurion who has a sick servant that we see in the other two Gospels. But the details are all different. There's no reason to think that Jesus only healed one person when he was asked who was a person of some importance. And so this is not a, a remaking of the story of the centurion, but a different account of a different miracle that Jesus does. But this is an urgent thing. His son is at the point of death. So he comes to Jesus. He says, heal my son. He's at the point of death. We would expect Jesus to say, all right, let's go. It's not what we see here. Jesus, in fact, almost seems to have a negative response or a harsh response. Jesus says in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. That seems like a really cruel thing for Jesus to say. My son is about to die. And Jesus says, Do you need to see a sign or a miracle to believe in me? This is something I think we have to wrestle with. If you ask Jesus to heal someone you love, and that person dies, how would you respond? I've thought about this question in the last few years. I think many of you have. If you get to be a certain age, a lot of the friends and family that you know will die. And if you believe and trust in Jesus, there are points at which you pray that God would give them a few more years or, or heal them from a particular sickness. And he doesn't always do that. What if they don't die, but they linger on in pain and difficulty? It could have been possible. We don't know what was wrong with this royal official son, but let's say that, let's say that his son was at the point of death because of some disease and he doesn't die but that disease incapacitates him now he can't walk maybe he can't speak it's a real possibility in their day and in ours as well it's something that we might pray to God about for someone who has something like um, MS or, or any of these sorts of diseases it's something that we might, we might pray about for someone who's facing something like dementia, which those diseases tend to get progressively worse. They're not death, but they're certainly not a normal life. Is God wrong to test your faith in this way? I mean, we know how this story ends, right? Jesus heals the Son. But you might look at that and you say, well, that's great for Him. What about my situation? 
Is God wrong to test your faith in that way? Consider the example of Job. We tend to look at Paul when we are thinking about how to pray for sickness, but I think more often we should look at Job. Because what are most of Paul's prayers about? Paul's prayers are about persecution. This person is trying to kill me because I'm preaching about Jesus. What are Job's prayers and difficulties about? Physical suffering. And he's not the exclusive example, but he's definitely one of the great examples that we have in Scripture of going through that, both the ups and the downs, the trust and the doubt that we experience when we go through those kinds of, of situations. Let's talk about things in the life of our church. We were praying for Maggie to have a clear scan on Thursday, and she did. We have prayed for other people in our church to be healed, to have relief from suffering. Some of you are experiencing pain right now, and you have prayed earnestly to God to remove that, and He has not said yes. Maybe other things are still pending as far as help from doctors or further answers of the experience that you are facing right now. Is God wrong to say yes to some prayers and no to others? Why does Jesus respond to, save my child who is dying with, unless you see miracles, you will not believe? Jesus is confronting the attitude of the Israelites when they only want to follow Jesus to the extent that he keeps doing remarkable things. And you and I have to wrestle with that same question. Are you and I just curious about Jesus? Are you and I only committed to Jesus to the extent that he fulfills our hopes and dreams? Or do we love Jesus even if he takes away everything we have and everyone we love? We see the persistence of this man as we continue in verse 49. This man appears to pass the test. He isn't merely curious like the crowd, but he desperately wants Jesus' help. He's about to die. Help him! Perhaps he's not yet a true believer, but I don't think he's motivated the same as many in the crowd. He has a, a desperate request. He has confidence that Jesus can deal with it. He's not in it because he wants to see a miracle as a mere curiosity. He is coming to Jesus because he wants to see his child live. And he is fervently pleasing, pleading with Jesus, saying, Will you do this? What does Jesus do? Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. We might think, well, Jesus needs to go to where the son is and lay hands on him or do something. Jesus says, Go, he's better. This is a continuation of the test. What does the man do next? Does he say, Are you sure? Does he send a messenger and wait there so that he can ask again in case it wasn't the case? He goes. He goes down from where Jesus is down to where his son is. He believes and he obeys. And then the slaves confirm that what has been said is true. They said, saying that his son was living. Verse 51. Now there is perhaps still a degree of doubt. Could this just be a coincidence? He inquires, verse 52, when did my son begin to get better? 
and the servants confirm that the healing was tied directly to Jesus' words. And then the father believes along with his household. This is, a, I think, a common thing that we see in the New Testament that we don't necessarily see today in the same way. We tend to think of faith as a very individualized thing today. Can God still save whole households? I think yes. This is not a, a proof text for infant baptism or for the idea that salvation is just a corporate reality. One person in the house gets saved, so everybody is now going to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there is a dramatic impact on the life of the whole family that when the father believes, the rest of the people see what's happened. They hear his testimony, and they believe together. And I think our uh, hesitation at thinking that this could happen today is perhaps a sign of our lack of faith, that God can save whole families. Sometimes we, we have this attitude when it comes to children's ministry. Well, if we can't get the parents, at least we'll, we'll impact the kids. No, God can save whole families if he chooses to. And so we should have faith that he can and does do that in some instances. We should not neglect speaking the gospel to all the people in a particular family that we have contact with. Here at the end it says this, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. Now, when we look at this, we should not necessarily think Jesus says the second sign as in this is sign two of seven or six, depending on how you count them. We should instead see that he says this is the second sign in Galilee because he's linking the two events together. So this is the completion of this story arc that started in chapter 2 and ends here. And the rest of the signs as we go through the book are not in fact numbered. And so there's a special link between these two signs that's not quite the same between the other signs. All of them point to Jesus, but these two happen in basically the same place and there's a lot of parallels between them. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? We pray to Jesus. We ask Him to do things. Will you still follow Jesus if He says no to your prayer? That's a hard question to wrestle with. Because we want to say that we would follow Jesus no matter what He says, and then we come face to face with that possibility that our lives might change dramatically, that someone we love might not be there tomorrow, that everything will be upended and different. Would you still believe in Jesus? What can God accomplish if he says yes or if he says no? Well, if he says yes, I mean, clearly we'd rejoice that he answers that prayer. And we have done that even this week. But if he says no, and you keep following him, what opportunity does that create for you with the people around you. If you say to them, I know I'm dying, but I believe in Jesus anyway. 
Some of them will dismiss it as the foolishness of someone who has, has no hope and is grasping at religious straws to try to make the best of a bad situation. And others will begin to wonder, why does this person keep believing in this God even when he does not make things better? And the only way that we have the strength to have the proper response of faith in that situation is if God gives it to us because in our own will and our own power, we can't maintain that faith in God in the face of extreme difficulty. But God can strengthen our faith and bring us through those trials by His power so that people might believe. I think another lesson we see from this story is the issue of persistence in the requests that we bring before God. If we go before God and we say, will you do this thing? And it seems like God says no, and we're like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to pray for that anymore. I don't think that we should have the false perspective that sometimes people have taught in books on prayer, that if you just sort of badger God often enough, He'll say yes. Sometimes kids think that's how you get the answer that you want. Right? I asked Dad and he said no, so I'm asking him again in five minutes. It's not that kind of a thing, but there is a degree of faith and persistence that I think that we are lacking in the microwave culture of our society that says if anything doesn't happen in 30 seconds, it's not worth happening. In reality, most things that are worth happening take far longer and far more persistence to accomplish. And I'll confess that this is, a, this is a struggle of mine because we are deeply influenced by the culture around us. We want answers now. We want the answer to be what we want now. And if it's not what we want now, then we're going to give up on it and move on to the next thing because that's the path of least resistance. If you are witnessing to somebody and, and they keep saying no, what does God want you to do? I don't think you have to keep saying to them every single time you see them, you need to pray and trust Jesus, you need to pray and trust Jesus, you need to pray and trust Jesus. But I do think you should be very fervent in prayer. Because God's the one that's going to change somebody's heart ultimately. You and I can't do that. You and I, in fact, are probably going to make them frustrated if we keep saying, you need to pray and believe in Jesus. But if we say, God, will you change this person's heart? They need to know that if they don't believe in you, they are separate from you for all eternity, God, you need to work in this person's life because apart from you, there is no hope. They go into the, the blackness and despair of death without anything. They are all alone. And they face your condemnation. If you pray that, God can see fit to answer that prayer. I know many of you in this room have family members who don't believe in Jesus. And so as fervently as you would have conversations and quote verses at them, I would say even far more fervently, you should say, I'm going to commit myself to pray for that person, whether it be a family member, a neighbor, a friend, someone you work with. Because God's the one that's going to change people's hearts, and if we really believe that, we'll pray more. And this man persisted in his request of Jesus, and Jesus said yes. Do you thank God in belief after he answers? We don't see a sign of that. We don't see a, a, a record of that here. 
But I think this is another of these things we struggle with. Do we have faith to bring it to God in the first place? Do we have persistence to keep asking even if the initial answer is no? And then when God says yes, do we thank Him for His work, whether it's yes or no, honestly, or do we just move on to the next thing that we're going to pray about? We need to be thankful. We need to acknowledge when God hears our prayers. Not because God is uh, dependent on that in some sort of uh, self-fulfillment kind of way, but because He deserves our praise and worship. And if He hears our prayers, that we should rejoice in that and we should acknowledge that. And we should perhaps share that with others so that they have opportunity to rejoice in what God has done as well. There's a huge contrast in this story arc between the beginning of the story, the wedding at Canaan of Galilee. People are interested in what Jesus is doing. But then even the religious elite seem confused. I don't know what this born-again idea is about. It seems puzzling. Although I think he does, by the end of the book, come to trust in Jesus. Nicodemus, at first, is very puzzled by what Jesus is saying. The crowds want to keep following Jesus, but Jesus goes into Samaria and the crowds say, eh, we don't want to go there. But then when they hear that he's back, they want to come see what he's up to. But he's come from this place where people that you would never expect to believe in him in Samaria believe in him. No great miracle, no turning water into wine, no raising someone from a near-death situation. Just a simple statement of the truths of sin and repentance and believe in me. And then he comes back to his own people and his own people say, I wonder what he's going to do. I'm still not going to believe, but I'm curious. And out of all of those people, here's one man who has a desperate request for the life of his child, who persists even when Jesus tests his faith, who sees God's power... If you want to see God's power, you are probably going to see it in the context of God testing your faith. I'm not saying that as an absolute principle, but I do think there's a lot of examples in Scripture that would bear that out. And this is not a... uh, This is not a name it and claim it kind of idea. If I just believe hard enough, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... There has to be a dependence on Jesus and a willingness to commit ourselves to Him regardless of the outcome. And in those moments, we see God's great power and so do the people around us. God has the right to test our faith and He often will test our faith. And the question for us is, do we have true faith? Like the woman at the well and the others from that city, Like this official who grows from a weaker faith to a stronger faith and truly believes as he sees Jesus' power? Are we like those people? Are we like other people who have an intellectual attachment of curiosity about Christianity but no real commitment to Jesus? You can be in church a long time. You can know a lot of facts. But there's a huge gap between knowing facts about God and actually believing and following God in the way that this story talks about.
Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this story. It is a hard story to read. It's a difficult thing to wrestle with these questions of would we believe whether or not you say yes or no? Lord, I pray that our faith would, be, would grow. That if we face that test, that we would pass it, not for our own sake, so that we can boast in it, but for what you can and will do through our testimony with people around us. Here you said yes. And sometimes I think we doubt that you can say yes. And if you do, and when you do say yes, Lord, may our rejoicing be a, a testimony as well. Lord, may we come to you as a God who demands that we approach you on your own terms, not on ours. We're not a God that we can bargain with, a God that we can make empty promises to, to trick you into giving us the things that we want. You're a God who is powerful, who works according to your own purposes and plans in ways that we often don't understand, but in ways that always accomplish your glory, in ways that are working to bring about a glorious day of victory for your people through what Jesus has already done and will yet do in defeating all of his enemies and reigning as king. Lord, may those truths fill us with hope in the ups and downs of life on this earth. May you strengthen our faith until our faith becomes sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.